Uh, well, let's pray and we'll get, we'll get started. Uh, Lord, we just pray that um, you would be here, you would be present, we would find our contentment, our joy in you, and you would be pleased in that and pour out your Holy Spirit. Give us vibrant worship this morning. Give us a heart of, of thanksgiving, of overflowing praise and adoration through Jesus Christ. Amen. So, I didn't get much. I asked for feedback last week, and maybe you guys are just slow. Maybe you guys don't know how to email. I don't know. Uh, maybe, you're, maybe you're scared. I don't know. But just to preface, I'm not, I would normally do just continue press through the Acts series uh, and, and keep going, but I thought it would be a good break. I didn't stop because I got a bunch of criticism. And if I got a bunch of criticism, that doesn't mean I wouldn't stop. <laughs> it's the Bible after all. Amen. I would just maybe try a little yeah. better. But so I thought it'd be a good um, a good time for me to do a little bit more topical sermon on uh, everybody knows should know Nehemiah eight ten the joy of the Lord is your strength uh, maybe maybe better translations say is your refuge or your strong house or your uh, it encapsulates an idea of like this is where you hide yourself um, but I really want to just talk about it in context of community lifestyle and of when we come to the Lord's table, what are we celebrating? What do we do on the Sabbath? Uh, and how does the Lord define that as a community and, and as a lifestyle? <clears throat> so to put it in context, we'll read uh, Nehemiah 8, 9 through 12, which says, and Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. That's sometimes happened. You read the Bible and you're like, uh, oh, and then I'm not words come out that you're not supposed to say in church. I got you just mourn. Uh, and then uh, do not weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And he said to them, go your way. Eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And so my purpose this morning is just to uh, uh, preach and talk about that. We're people called to be full of joy in whatever season. Uh, we're to be a community with feasting, celebrating, and sharing. And there should be continual, it should be a continual feast. We come every week to a feast. That's one of the reasons why just pragmatically we have a meal afterwards or some kind of food, even if it's just bagels and cream cheese or something. Is because it's a feast day. It's supposed to be a happy day. It's a holy day. Uh, you shouldn't be thinking Saturday night at like midnight, oh, darn, got to wake up early for church in the morning. Uh, again, this happens every week, right? It should be, <clears throat> it's a, the, the Christian life really should be a continuous feasting of joy and satisfaction and, and overflowing of contentment and thanksgiving and, and goodness. Now, that doesn't mean I'm, I'm not preaching the prosperity gospel. 
up here. I wish that was true, because then my life would be a lot better if it was. But unfortunately, it's not. But you should have joy in every season. Uh, there should be contentment. There should be thanksgiving. There should be feasting in every season. You could really just have a crappy life. You really could. You could be dealt a bad hand. And that doesn't mean that the, your joy should be diminished in any way. It might look different, uh, or, or it might, uh, might be you know, waves in different seasons, but, but there's nothing in Scripture that I ever see that says that given a certain stage of life or, or given certain situations that there shouldn't be joy in the presence of the Lord. And so just to give a context of Nehemiah, um, and, and so in our Bibles, we got two books. We got Ezra and Nehemiah, and the, it was originally written as one book. Ezra and Nehemiah was one book, and I don't remember exactly when. I don't know if that was after the Protestant Reformation or, or sometime near English translation. I really don't know why it was divided up into two books. I just figure it would be easier if it was two books, and so they did it. And it seemed like a good, clean clean place to break. And so really, it could be split into three books with uh, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, but it's, we got two. And so, and so I want to kind of look at uh, Ezra and Nehemiah in the context of what they're doing, of, of what we're called to do, what every Christian community is called to do, but what we're trying to uh, actively participate in the will of God. And so they're in a stage of rebuilding. They were in exile for 70 years, and they're called back by King Cyrus, gives, them, uh, gives Ezra leeway to go back and, and start rebuilding the wall and, and offer sacrifices and rebuilding the temple and, and various things. And so they're rebuilding not just a, a house of worship, but they're re- rebuilding a whole city. They're re- rebuilding a civilization. They're rebuilding community. They're starting from the ground up. Uh, it was... I don't know if I'd say the ultimate, but it was the ultimate church plant. They're like, we're just going to move everyone to this. There were, there were uh, people who weren't taken captive who were still living in Jerusalem and the surrounding cities. And, uh, and so they had a good little base of people, I guess. And they had enough people come with them to, <clears throat> to build the walls and whatnot. But that's what they're doing. They're rebuilding a civilization, a, a city, a, a place worship God. And we're living in a post-Christian world. Uh, no longer is Christianity the majority religion. We have a majority in, in America by polled numbers, but a small majority, a small minority actually practice. And so we are really in a, in a state of, um, I don't know if we'd be in a rebuilding a civilization, but certainly Christianity doesn't hold the majority sway or influence anymore. In a lot of ways. <clears throat> and you've got, as you go through the story, especially, and I'm just kind of recapitulating Nehemiah here, not all of, all of Ezra, but uh, Sanballat starts a conspiracy against Nehemiah and the Jews. There's a lot of opposition to the work. There's a lot of problems. There's a lot of reasons to grumble and complain. There's a lot of ways for your joy to be, to be taken away. They have a, a pretty bad situation. Um, you know, at one point they're, they're told that you need to have a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other hand, and you're going to build, and then when people fight, you're going to fight, and uh, maybe from nine to noon you're going to work, and from noon to three you're going to fight people, and from, from three to eight you're going to work. <laughs> and then you're going to do it again tomorrow. That sounds like fun, right? And so there's a lot of, and, and really it's, 
I like the whole story behind the opposition with Sambalot and some other people because they're just like, who do these people think they are? They're just going to go over here and build a, build a city and, and worship the Lord. And then they're just like watching them and mocking them. It, it, I don't see any, uh, besides just being haters of God, I don't really see any reason why they don't, why they don't like them. They're not taking a position of, well, these people go, well, they're just doing their thing over there. And they're not really bothering Sanballat and his, his people. And they're just bothered by people working over there and doing something for the Lord. That's all they're bothered by, right? It would be a, a, I don't really know the mindset of people in our, in our neighborhood, but I do know I've literally seen sitting out front people, someone, this only happened once, walk their dog, and they stopped their dog for their dog to pee on the cross, and then they kept going. And even, I wouldn't, uh, well, I can't say what I would or would not do if I had a dog or if I was going past like a pagan temple, but maybe just out of, not respect for their gods, but an opportunity to talk to them. I wouldn't let my dog pee on their idols. I don't know. Maybe I would. Who knows? But, but I don't know what was going through that person's mind, but I'm just saying, like, we, I don't know what the surrounding context of people in our community around the church is, but it would be like people uh, in this community just, I just don't like that church being there. I just don't like it. I don't like that cross. It bothers me. That's the kind of problem Sanballat had against the Jews, rebuilding the temple in, in Jerusalem. And so one of those things that happens in the story or in the, in the storyline is that Nehemiah starts reinstituting justice. He re, they read the law, and that's when we get to our reading in Nehemiah 8 is they're like, oh no, <laughs> like this is, there's a lot that we've missed. There's a lot uh, that we have to do. And and how are we going to do it? And, but Nehemiah, even before that, goes before, and it's how he gets enacted as, as governor, is he starts a, the, the, what happens in any community is you get people together, and what's the first thing that happens? Problems. <laughs> I don't have many problems in my room by myself. I'm going to be honest with you. I've got some, but <laughs> those are personal problems. And, but I don't have a whole lot of problems when I'm not interacting with people. It's usually when I have to like do something with somebody or I have to talk to them or they're in the general vicinity of my life that there's problems, right? And this problem was that the, the oppression of the poor, they were um, just like you see in Acts chapter 6 where he institutes the, the deacons because the, the uh, widows were getting neglected in the and the daily distributions, the same thing that's happening. The poor were oppressed. Nehemiah puts a stop to it. Make, he's making allowment for everybody in the community gets not their fair share, but they're getting taken care of. They're getting, they're not going to go hungry. We're, you know, he's instituting that we're doing this together, right? And there's this, there's this theme throughout Nehemiah of this slow and steady building of the wall and, and community growth. It's not just, I don't know, sometimes I just read through uh, Exodus recently and and there is a community atmosphere in building the tabernacle, but it's not the, it's not the same as when they're rebuilding this, the, the temple here in Nehemiah. You kind of get this, you could get this idea when they're building the moving tabernacle that it was, it was just these people filled with the Spirit of God and just these people who were gifted and, and really all the rest of the Israelites were just complaining and grumbling and, and the professionals did the work. And, but, uh, but it's that there's this theme throughout the, the book of slow and steady growth, community building. They're not just building a place of worship, they're building a community. 
Because it wouldn't matter if the, the poor got oppressed, if they were just building a temple. It really wouldn't matter because they're going to come and worship God and it doesn't matter if we take care of them or not. Right? That's not that, wasn't, that wasn't a concern. The concern was community growth, building a city, doing it together, and it's just slow and steady. The work is day in and day out. And so then, Ezra, if you look at Nehemiah chapter 8, Nehemiah and Ezra were contemporaries, although Nehemiah is maybe 50 to 70 years after Ezra. And so, obviously, Ezra is here. He's alive. He's, he's going to be much older. And so Ezra is taking the role of a, of a priest. Or, and he builds a platform, right, like a stage, stands up and he reads the law, and he sermonizes, so he's preaching a sermon, right, to the whole community, and then they, uh, after they're done on the Sabbath day, they take a break, and they send out, uh, you can read the list of people, we don't go through all of them, mostly because I won't be able to pronounce all of them, Nehemiah 8, 7 through, uh, 7 and 8, Right, and they he sends out people into small groups or into households to see, hey, did you understand what we're talking about? It wasn't just a, hey, I'm going to get up here and preach. That's what we do. We're going to read from the law. But did you understand? Did you grasp it? Right. It was a it was an inclusion in for the individual for the household that it was not just we're going to get up here and and preach to you and read it and do our duty and tell you what to do. We're going to send it home with you. We're going to make sure you understand it, and we're going to make sure that you. That you, when you read it, what do you? There's no benefit if you don't understand it, and so it was in, in that context of building the community, of making sure that households were enabled and empowered and understood, and 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 went from there. And that's how he's rebuilding the society. And so then, after our reading in Nehemiah eight, it goes on to that they're celebrating the the Feast of Booths. That was the Sabbath that they were celebrating, which would. Um, uh, commemorate, which remembered that they were dwelling in, they would build, you can read the rest of Nehemiah 8, 13 through uh, the beginning of chapter 9. To it, They're building little tents of, of trees and, and palm trees and different uh, garden-like structures all over the city, and they can't dwell in their houses, and so they build these like tents out of uh, tree branches and stuff to uh, remember their, not just that they dwelt in tents throughout the wilderness, but it's a reflection of the garden. That that's what we're what what are we building for? We're building to to get a place, a community where we worship God and we return to the garden. We return to a, a communion, a fellowship with God. That's that personal. That that's close, right? And that's what the whole context of Ezra and Nehemiah kind of uh, kind of focuses on is this Sabbath of the Feast of Booths, and then later, I think, maybe it's later, maybe it's earlier, they celebrate the Passover. I have to look at that again. I'm just going to see if it's in the headings. Uh, at one point, they reinstitute the Passover, but in, in this context where they're reading the law and, and everything, uh, they are doing weekly Sabbath worships, but this is the next feast. We're commemorating that the Lord is, is the whole earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, and the whole world is going to be transformed into communities and pockets of people who worship God in such a way that he dwells with his people, and it reflects going back to the garden. Um, and soon after that, they have public confession, there's repentance, there's, and, and, there's, and then there's this huge, long 
proclamation, this huge long prophecy, if you would, about just uh, God's mercy and goodness. And, and he's just speaking publicly about, you know, in the community, about it's, it's more of what you would see when people got baptized in the Spirit and uh, in Acts, where they just uh, proclaim, you know, the greatness of God and, and prophesy. And so really, around that context and the Lord's table, what we do every Sunday in the Lord's day and what we do in community, I just want to put that in context and the joy of the Lord is your strength. All right, so that uh, not just that we understand it a little bit better, but that we follow the Lord's instruction. And, and if we're not there, then surely the Lord wants us there. If we're not there as a community... Surely the Lord wants us there as a community. If you're not there as an individual, surely the Lord wants you there as an individual. Uh, but sometimes we get weary from the work and the monotony. Um, but what I find this funny, if the, at the very least funny, uh, but sometimes we need to be instructed to just go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, right? Stop. <laughs> Nehemiah or Ezra tells him, Stop crying. <laughs> Quit your crying. Go have a feast. Go drink the sweet wine. Go share it with other people. Stop, stop being a negative Nelly. Right? And then later, just you know, one line later, he actually tells them, be quiet. This day is holy. And so oftentimes, if, especially if you've got small children, it's you, uh, it's a, I don't want to say fine line, but it's a, it's a way of wisdom you learn as a parent to move your children. Every child loves to complain. Every child loves to, they got a lot to complain about, right? They're three, four, five, six years old or more. And they got, this whole life is full of complaints. A lot of reasons to cry. cry. But uh, a lot of times what, the job of a parent is to instruct your child, not just the, their discipline and instruction and way of life, but their, their character, their heart, right? You're leading their hearts. And so what I've been trying to accomplish in the, uh, the call to the table is a reminder of the feast we're invited to. As if you, and that's really all I wanted to sermonize about today was just reminding us of the feast we're invited to, what we're partaking in, and how we're supposed to be a community just like full of joy, sharing with one another. Eat the feast, drink the sweet wine, right? I don't like Moscato, but it says, drink the sweet wine, go and have it, go and have some sangria, right? And so uh, I do want this to be an also reminder that we don't, I wouldn't call it a communion meditation, just to be a little nitpicky about words. It's, I don't care what you call it, if you call it a communion meditation, but I wouldn't call it a communion meditation because that's uh, not the gospel, right? We're not called to just sit here and personally meditate on it. Now, hold on, don't get mad. We are called to meditate on it, on the gospel. And let it ruminate, but we're not called to meditate on the body and blood of Christ and the sacrifice he made and work ourselves up into coming to the table, right? It is an invitation. It's, there's nothing you have to do uh, to come to Christ, 
first. You don't have to clean yourself up first. You don't have to get a certain amount of sanctification first, right? It's an invitation to come, come and dine, come to the feast, right? And so uh, in my outlines, I usually just call it a call to the table, right? It's not like you have to sit here and meditate and be introspect in such a way that you work up enough uh, uh, you know, self-beatings and, and works to become acceptable and then you dine and then that cleanses you from the guilt that you just put on yourself and then you can go and do it next week. <laughs> and you can try to work up some more guilt. If you weren't guilty enough before coming to the table, you can try this week to work up enough guilt so that you're guilty enough when you come to the table again because then it'll be really effective, right? That's not, in my mind, that's what uh, we lead into with even just calling it a communion meditation. And so it's a call, it's an invitation. The gospel call is a call to, to the world to, to come and feast. And so how we, kind of how we characterize the table is, is how we, is, is an outworking of, of what we think our relationship with God is like. Right, it shows us what we think of grace and how we respond to it. Right, is it drudgery or do we come feasting and rejoicing? And so I don't care if you come dancing to the table. Right? And so why would you come to the table with morbid introspection? Why would you come to the table with uh, uh, an introspection that is, that is morbid and, and, and causes more grief, right? If it's true that uh, Romans 8 says there's no more condemnation, I don't need to put on condemnation to come to the table to remove the condemnation, right? It's already been done. And so um, we are called to consider our sins, consider what Christ has done. We are called to consider our lifestyles before coming to the, to the table so that we wouldn't eat it in an improper way. We're, all, we're specifically called to ask ourselves, how do we treat one another, Right, I think Paul, by the Spirit, had some uh, had extreme wisdom in saying, "You can, I can come to the table every week, and I can disregard how I treated my wife and kids and other people, and and I can come and receive forgiveness, and I can come and think about my own sins, but but and I can do that again and again in an unworthy manner. But if I was to think about how I treated you or treated my wife and kids and and how I treated other people this week." or how I'm treating them, then that gives me a little bit better idea of how I'm actually coming to the table. And so uh, we are called to be somewhat introspect in how we, uh, in our sins, and be aware of, of our sins and, and ask for forgiveness and confess them and how we treat brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. But that doesn't keep us from the table by any means, right? That is an invitation to come and dine and have your sins washed away and receive grace and repent and go out and, and sin no more, right? And so what we get in the, uh, in, in the table is how we, and how we come to it. Let's look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Which reads, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace in which he has blessed us in the beloved. In the beloved. And so when we come to the table, we understand that he predestined us. I just found out that Josiah was uh, speaking about that at the 1030. And so that means he knew about our sins before he called us. He knew what we were going to do. He knew the level of guilt, and he still chose us. And so the call to the table is just a call to dine with him. And he's, he already knows about it. He already knows the sins you're going to commit this week. He already knows what you're going to do. And he's already giving you grace, right? That's what we get. And so, and so around, kind of centered around that, that he's already chose us. He's already predestined us. He's already poured out every spiritual blessing that he has to offer. He's not withholding anything. All we're invited to is to party with him and to feast with him and to dine with him and to rejoice and to be thankful and to be content and to love him back, right? We don't have to work out what, what God hasn't put in. When Philippians talks about working out your salvation with fear and trembling, we don't work out what he hasn't put in, right? He doesn't invite us to a feast and he's like, oh yeah, by the way, I need you to like... I need you to bring the cake, and I need you to bring the food, and I need, I need you to do some things here. <laughs> I need you to, this, I forgot to tell you, it's a potluck. <laughs> I forgot to tell you about that. And I'm like, oh man, didn't realize I had to do a lot for this. <laughs> but he doesn't invite us to that kind of feasting. He invites us to a feast that was already prepared for us. Christ tells us that in the parable in Matthew where those, uh, you know, mirroring the Jews who had rejected Christ and inviting, Christ invites prostitutes and all kinds of of surly people. And all you had to do was wear the right clothes. You just had to put on a suit and tie or whatever the wedding garments were. were. All you had to come was, all you had to do was come and dine. It was already prepared. All they did was go out to the streets and call people and, hey, you want to come? You want to come? Let's go. And let's party. Let's do this together. Right? And so... Even when you look at Christ's ministry and what we're doing in the season of Lent, does anybody know how many days Lent is? Isn't it six weeks? 40, who said 40? Raise your hand if you said 40. That's just, I want you to raise your hand because you're wrong. <laughs> John, John Luke, 46. <laughs> yeah, 46. Why? It's 46 days. Sundays is the Lord's Day, so we don't celebrate on the Lord's Day. We do celebrate. We feast. It's a feast day, right? It's a, it's a, a Lent is partially a time where we're looking. It's an extended, uh, I don't want to say Sabbath. It's, it's just an extended portion of the church calendar where we do, we are reminded of our sin. We're not supposed to be reminded in our sin in such a way that we have to beat our own flesh and our own selves to get acceptance. But it's a reminder because we're, leading to Easter, right? We don't have to come with morbid introspection so that we could finally get to Easter and then we could always be, we could be happy again, <laughs> right? It's like, oh man, I, the church fathers are really, really cruel. They got us 46 days of, of unhappiness so that we could finally get to one day of happiness. Now, that wasn't their intention, Right, it's the church calendar follows the life of Christ, and so it's an extended period of where we are reminded of our sin. We are 
you know, encouraged to, to, to fast from things, but that's reflecting Christ in the wilderness. That's reflecting that Christ prepared his way for ministry. He prepared his way for, uh, for Easter Sunday, for the resurrection. It wasn't going to, Jesus wasn't going to stay in the wilderness. But in, in the table, what we're called to, what we're called to as a community is reflecting Ephesians 1 of when, when Jesus was baptized, before he had really done any ministry, he was already the Father's son, and the Father already said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And he hadn't even done what he had come to accomplish. He just was getting ready. He was just getting started. All he did was go to John the Baptist and say, hey, get me wet. That's all he did. And maybe he put up a little fight because John didn't want to baptize him. And, but, but the father was already pleased. He was already delighting in him. He was already happy. He was already giving his full acceptance. Right? And Jesus didn't have to go to the wilderness to, to then beat his own flesh and to get, the Lord's, to get the father's acceptance. It was already there. He was led out to the wilderness afterwards. And so... The fest of joy is, is what we're supposed to be living throughout the week. It's, we culminate that here in the Lord's Day, but it's supposed to define our community. If you don't feel like your life is defined by joy, then and we've got a lot of people who aren't defined by joy, we're not going to have a joyous community. And this isn't a call to, okay, yeah, you're right, let's go home and let's just muster up the joy. That's not, you can't do that. It's a, it's a gift. All you have to do is receive it. The Lord does give some instruction on how to uh, become a joyful person, how to become a community based on joy. And in our passage, it was, uh, be quiet. This is the Lord's day. Go home and eat the feast and drink the wine and share with others. Right? Sometimes we have to be reminded of what we have to do. That doesn't mean, right, if you even look at, it's the whole story of Israel and the wilderness of their major sin was grumbling and complaining, right? They weren't a very, very joyful community uh, as, as they were. They, had, had, they needed 40 years to get the, the lifestyle and mindset of Egypt uh, out of the Israelites. And so their major uh, sin was complaining and and until they got that out of them, they weren't allowed to cross the Jericho and get into the promised land. And so there's often times where we do have to be reminded of what the Lord spoke, has already said, what he's already done, that it's a, it's a call and an invitation. And sometimes we need instructions to just be quiet, just stop complaining. The best way to like, have joy is not fake it till you make it, but just stop doing the negative, right? It's like... Um, if you want a wound to heal, you don't just keep picking at it. And I don't know why it's not getting better. I keep peeling the scab off and it bleeds everywhere. And, right? And so what we have in Christian community is not just the promises of God that were accepted and, and sanctified and, and chosen and loved beforehand. Like this is, we not just have those promises, but God instills a way of life that we're supposed to follow that is supposed to increase joy. That's supposed to increase the festivities. That's supposed to remind us of what he's done. So I was just, um, I just read through Rush Dooney's Tithing and Dominion, and I was like, oh, I guess there's a lot of things I missed. And uh, I was discussing this with a couple of guys yesterday, 
is this isn't this won't bring joy, but just wait till I get to the end. Uh, did you know that yearly the Lord actually requires you to tithe twenty percent? You're like, oh, <laughs> well, I got I got something to do. I gotta go. <laughs> it's time for me to leave. Uh, and then every three years he requires thirty percent, and you're like, oh no. <laughs> Like, thank God we're in the New Testament. We ain't got to do none of it. Nobody laughed. That was a joke. That was, that was not, not true. And so one of the yearly tithes, you were supposed to spend, you're supposed to give the Lord a tithe for the regular uh, worship, the regular Sabbaths, the regular uh, feeding of the Levites. That was how they were to get their, uh, uh, get their income. There was every, I'll skip one, every three years you were supposed to give 10% of your income to a poor tithe, and that was to be distributed amongst the community, right? And we, we see that with Ezra here distributing amongst the poor. But every year you were required to give another 10% for a year-long, or I'm sorry, a week-long feast. And so you were supposed to spend 10% of your yearly income every year for a community party that lasted seven days. And you're like, oh, that's not so bad. <laughs> like, I thought I was going like, to give me, I thought I was going to give the people my money and not get anything back. But you were supposed to, if, uh, uh, if you ever heard individuals quote, it's, it's in, I can't remember if it's Leviticus or Deuteronomy, where you can take your tithe or take your produce of your land, you can exchange it for money, and you can buy whatever you want. You can buy meat, you can buy cheese, you can buy strong drink, you can buy a lot of things to go towards this, that was to go towards the yearly feast. Because the Lord has instituted regular Sabbaths and festivals throughout his people so that they would be a community of joy, of feasting, right? If it was, if we didn't have that, I would get weary. I would get bogged down. I'd be like, what the heck are we doing? It's always just like problems and, and troubles and we just got to get through to the, to the next season, and, but that's not the way God had planned it. He understands our weaknesses. He understands our weaknesses as individuals and, and as individuals in community. And so uh, this is just a side point. We haven't decided anything. I just like to say things from the pulpit to get people, like, get people going. And maybe if it's a good idea, we'll do it. And maybe you'll get an elder up here next week and say, hey, by the way, what he said was totally wrong. And, and it's not true. But... Uh, I hope we have, this is our 20th year as Grace Christian Fellowship. I hope we have a really big party. I hope, now just do the calculations in your head. How much do you make gross or net per, <laughs> how much do you make every year? Take the net if you want to uh, and just convert that, take 10% of that and be like, that's what maybe God would want you to spend on a party. Uh, but then put that collectively together as, as a community and we're much, we're much more in the clear, right? And that it should be that big. That would be like, that would be pretty noticeable if, uh, even when we have our yearly church picnic or what people notice is the giant uh, uh, tent and what's it called, bouncy house, right? And, and it's, when they, I think when they see us out there, the last thing they're going to assume is that these people are not having a good time. They're not saying, man, these people don't know how to party and these people uh, don't enjoy fellowship with one another. I, I guarantee you they're not saying that, 
right? So some of these, these uh, feasts are, are public, right? They're meant to be uh, like a light to the world of we're not, we meet in here every Lord's Day and, and just generally like people don't see what's going on. They don't, you know, the guy living across the street or whatever. He doesn't know what we do unless he comes in. But some of those regular feasts are public so that everybody sees them so that they know what type of community they would be invited to if they ever got an invite, <laughs> right? They'd be know if they, what, the, what the gospel is by how we worship, by how we, how we feast together, how we party, right? Um, but there are seasons of, of despair. There are seasons of, of, or seasons of life individually, corporately, where uh, there might not, it's not easy to get as much joy, right? Uh, it might be, now, if you're saying, well, I'm not in despair, but I'm not really in, in, into joy, uh, or I'm not in a season of joy, then you might be just apathetic, but uh, let's go to Psalm, let's open up a couple Psalms. I'll just, Psalm 2 says, uh, the Lord prepares a table in the presence of my enemies, right? That doesn't sound like, I mean, that kind of seems like boasting, if you read it that way, but it also kind of seems like, well, I'm going to be surrounded by enemies. That's not too fun, but we are going to feast in the middle of it, right? Psalm 23, right? That's Proverbs. That's why that doesn't look right. Sorry. Psalm 23, right? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right? This is a psalm of David. He didn't have like a very good life, let's be honest. Uh, after he got anointed to be king, and then the current king, Saul, tried to kill him a bunch of times, and he had a couple cool instances with, you know, fighting a giant and killing him, and, and he had some notoriety, but most of his life he was just running. And then he comes into his kingship, and it's not long before he falls into sin, but... It ends, Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Right? I quoted Psalm 2 earlier, but that was actually in Psalm 23. Um... But Psalm 2 is, why do the nations rage? Why are the people's plot and gain, and gain right? But he's going to be victorious. And, then, and so even in the, the valley of the shadow of death, when there should be, you would think naturally, there's a bunch of despair. The Lord's just like, hey, drink the wine. <laughs> Eat the feast. Goodness and mercy. You might think you're in a season of despair, or you might be in a season of despair. You might not think it. You are. And what the Lord's saying is, yeah, that's real. That is, that's like real, right? But what you're invited to is the Lord's goodness, his mercy. It's overflowing. And you can, you know, just the majesty of the gospel and life with Christ is you could be, there's tons of Christians who have just been persecuted and killed and tortured, right? And they go to death with joy, 
They go to, to, to being burned alive, singing songs of praise. Like, like I, don't, I don't know if I'm there yet. <laughs> like, I don't, I've never had that much despair. I've uh, never had that kind of persecution or, or that kind of being surrounded by my enemies. Right? And, and, but Psalm 1611, let's kind of end with, with that one. This is a, a kind of a precious psalm to me because it really, uh, before I even knew what deliverance was and, and that I had demons, and this is what, what brought me deliverance. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's where we live. If we're in the presence of the Lord, if we come here every Sabbath day and worship him, we don't have to conjure up a bunch of worship to hopefully he is here. He just is. That's what he's inviting. We don't have to work our own salvation in such a way that he will then be pleased with us and pour out his spirit. He just wants to do it, right? He invites us to that weekly feast. He invites us to the table. He invites us to, to annual and, and regular feast because he just loves us. He just wants to pour out goodness and mercy. He just wants to give us pleasures forevermore. And we come here every Sunday and worship, and, and sometimes it's, it's hard, but that's the continual invitation and and so it's a it's a gift we just have to unwrap it we just have to receive it receive it by faith and so we you can start with thanksgiving just be quiet thank the lord be content for where he has you and eat the feast drink the wine share it with others right and so when we i hope we have uh, a spirit of just thanksgiving and contentment and 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 worship this morning and that the Lord is pleased and he pours out his spirit. So, amen.